0: Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, sponsored by TechHelp Boston.
1: There is great power in a story because you find out how someone else got to where she wanted to go, and you begin to believe that you can do it too. Welcome to part two of the incredible life of Donna Halper, author, media historian, and trailblazer for women in radio. After years of being told that she would never be on the air, she did just that. First in college, back in 1968, and then behind the scenes at the legendary WABC in New York City. As the music director for WMMS in Cleveland, she received a homegrown album from an unknown rock trio from Canada called Rush and gave their song Working Man a shot on the air. She's credited for discovering the band, and she's remained friends with Rush for decades. She even joined them when they received their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and she cheered them on when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Her road to success, though, has been anything but easy. And she says she relied upon her Jewish faith and her own code of ethics to get to where she is today. After having spent 28 years as a radio broadcast consultant, she focused her attention on writing books, and she is widely known as a media historian. An associate professor at Leslie University now, I had to ask her about her books, her lifelong love of writing, and why these stories matter so much to her.
2: I always liked writing. When I was a kid, I wrote poetry. That was kind of my catharsis. I wrote songs. And again, we're not talking Shakespeare here, okay? I I did it mainly for catharsis, mainly because it made me feel better. As I got older, I just kept doing it. But when I got into radio, I was very curious. And I wondered who my mothers were. Like, who were the women that came before me? Because there had to be somebody. And I wanted to thank them. And I looked in the history books about media history, and it was only about men. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But I'm a big believer in tell the whole story. Don't write out an entire group of people, whether it's women, whether it's people of color, whoever. Okay, tell the whole story. And the whole story wasn't being told. And I guess I found my next calling there without even realizing it. I just decided that what I would do was find out who my mother was, find out who was the first woman to be on the radio. Because according to the books that I had access to, oh no, not until the 60s. And I'm like, oh, that can't be right. And I started doing research. And it led to oh my God, about two decades worth of research. And I finally found the early women who were on the air as announcers. And I found the late, great Eunice Randall, who was on the radio as early as 1920. I found the first woman to own a radio station, Marie Zimmerman, 1922. And I decided that I would tell their stories. And that ultimately led to the first edition of a book called Invisible Stars, A Social History of Women in American Broadcasting. I was told there wasn't enough to fill 10 pages. I wound up finding 400 pages worth. And it's not just a story of like, well, this woman worked here and this woman worked there. It's a story of how society changed. It's a story of how women went from being in the domestic sphere only to being in the public sphere and to having different jobs, not just radio, but to also being newsmakers. We're coming up as we record this. We're coming up to the anniversary of women getting the vote, which they got in August of 1920. And while women could vote in state elections. And in mayoral elections, as far back as the 1880s and 90s in some states, we didn't get universal suffrage. We didn't get permission to vote till the summer of 1920. And that changed a lot of lives because suddenly women were getting into politics. And where before there was just like one woman, Jeanette Rankin, who was serving in Congress, Suddenly there were more women running for office and then more women and more women and women in other non-traditional fields. And I decided to tell all their stories, the story of society changing. The book ended up being in a second edition, which I was very honored to update it. And it came out in 2014 in that second edition. And that has been kind of my life's work. I hope there will be a third edition. Um, I also, being on the air in Boston, I wrote a book about the history of Boston radio in words and pictures, Boston Radio 1920 to 2010. And I still do well with that book. People find it kind of a trip down memory lane, and I get a kick out of that. Overall, I've written six books and many, many, many articles because I love doing research. I love learning new things. I'm 73. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I love rock and roll. I love music. I love dancing. But I got in radio for the music, not for the lifestyle. So I've always done ongoing research. And, you know, still being young and cute, I'm always wondering, what's the next thing? What's the next thing I can research? So I write baseball history. I do some work for Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. I've written encyclopedia articles for a number of different encyclopedias. It's fun for me. Find a project you enjoy, all joking aside. If you can monetize it, great. If you can't monetize it, if it keeps your brain active, so much the better. I'm a cancer survivor. As we are doing this, I'm six years cancer-free, by the grace of God. And what keeps my mind from worrying about the cancer recurring is just keeping busy writing, teaching, getting out before the pandemic and doing speaking engagements. I like to be busy because it really does keep my mind occupied and I really enjoy learning new things. I love finding women who have been forgotten and writing them back into history. I get a tremendous kick out of doing that. I've been doing a lot of research into African-American women who have been forgotten. And, you know, it just it's a great opportunity to tell people stories. And I consider myself privileged to be able to do it.
1: You earned your Ph.D. at 64 and then you begin teaching at Lesley University, which I know you really love. But one of the theories that you teach is based on something which is called media ecology. Tell us all about what that is.
2: Media ecology is a system of thought that treats the media as environments, okay? Media environments can become self-fulfilling prophecies. They can create and shape your thought. They can create and shape your perspectives on life. In other words, media are not neutral. We are influenced by the kind of media we choose. We are influenced by the kind of media we consume. And media ecology looks at not just the effect the media have on us, but how the media create these different environments that we live in and may not even realize we're living in because media are so influential. We live in a mediated culture. We live in a culture that is mediatized. It is driven by media, whether it's social media, whether it's radio, television, uh, newspaper, magazines, books, um, compact discs, which people still listen to, YouTube videos. We are constantly being buffeted by so much information. And we also probably don't realize that that is affecting us. I don't know about you. Let me throw something out to listeners out there. I've got a pretty good memory, okay? Like being the master of reinvention the way I am, I've had to learn all kinds of new stuff. When radio changed, when a whole bunch of us got downsized and lost our jobs, I went back to school when I was 55. I, you know, yes, I got my PhD when I was 64. But the reality of the situation is, there is so much being thrown at us. Now I used to remember all these facts. I really did because I grew up in that society where you had to. Today, like my husband and I are watching TV and we see an actor or an actress that we we know we've seen them in something else. So what do you do? You immediately google it. okay? I, I didn't grow up with that. I grew up like memorizing. Who was that person? What show was he or she in? How many different movies did they make? It's almost kind of like, and I don't want to sound science fiction-y, but it's sort of like we're giving over our ability to remember stuff to our devices. Now, our devices are remembering stuff where we used to be the ones that remembered it. Okay, fine, allegedly our devices work for us, but... It's just a different environment than when I was growing up. And I'm fascinated by how these different environments affect people.
0: Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian president of TechHelp Boston, with the reasons why. It's really about forging a relationship and having a trusting relationship because your technology is very personal to you. It used to be in the old days that things were private. When you're online, nothing is private anymore. And we want to make sure that that information is kept confidential and with somebody that you trust and you feel comfortable with. You can trust Tech Help Boston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit techhelpboston.com. That's techhelpboston.com.
1: It takes teamwork to put a weekly series like this together. I am so grateful to Jordan Rich and Ken Carberry for giving the story behind her success a home at Chart Productions. And to Dan Tebow, our editor from Fast Twitch Media. JC Valeris at Platinum Circle Media, who handles our social media marketing and so much more. Thank you all for making me look so good. Let's get back to our conversation with Donna Halper, a trailblazer for women in radio. You had mentioned we are influenced by the media we consume. So as an expert, not just because you've been a broadcaster for most of your life, but also now as an associate professor, what do you think of media in 2020? Is it fair? Is it balanced? When you look at it, when you listen and watch, what do you think as an expert?
2: Well, that's a great question to ask a media historian. And I happen to know a media historian. Hello. So the truth is, we have a tendency to say, oh, my God, things have never been worse. Oh, my God. And the truth is, the media were never fair and balanced. I mean, that's a cute little slogan that Fox News came up with. But the reality is the media were never fair and balanced. If you go back to the era of yellow journalism back in the 1880s and 90s, which by the way, the term fake news was in use in the 1880s and 90s, hello, it's not a new word. So even back then, There were media that were sensationalistic, that exaggerated, that out and out lied, that tried to manipulate people to the left or to the right, that tried to dominate you with certain discourses that they wanted you to believe. It's been going on for generations. The only thing that's really changed is I think some of us notice it now. Some of us are more able to critique it now than perhaps in generations past. And also we have more of an expectation, some of us, that there will be some media outlets that do try to be objective or that at least try to be fair to the facts. I am the editor of the Leslie Public Post, which is the school newspaper at Leslie University. And I always train my journalists to be fair to the facts. In other words, When you get the facts, don't use your prejudices to make the story come out the way you want it to. Tell the truth about it. If you don't like a particular candidate or if you don't like a particular policy, that's lovely. That's why God created the opinion page. So go on the opinion page and give us your opinion. But when you're gathering the facts, be fair to them and tell the truth about them. And also, And here's something that many people have forgotten. Don't get out in front of the facts. There's a wonderful book by Douglas Rushkoff, R-U-S-H-K-O-F-F. It's called Present Shock. I think the subtitle is something like, when everything is happening now. One of the downsides of social media is everything is happening now. And this leads people to get out in front of the facts. They see a YouTube video, and instead of examining what's the context, who are the people in this video, are they credible, are they not credible, am I just seeing a snippet, oh, no, people react. They get on social media, they're outraged, they can't believe it. In many cases, yeah, it's good that you can't believe it because it didn't really happen that way. But unfortunately, there is an expectation from the audience now that they want the facts now. And the reality is any newsman or newswoman will tell you, the facts don't always reveal themselves instantly. I may not know why X happened right away. It may take me a little time to find out why X happened. But we're running into this constant expectation of now, now, now. And that's really problematic. So, No, I don't have an expectation that the media will always be fair and balanced, but I do have an expectation that the journalists that I respect will make a good faith effort to get the facts, be fair to the facts, and not get out in front of the facts. But unfortunately, yeah, journalists are human. They make mistakes. They're like anybody else. The wise journalist corrects those mistakes The foolish person denies that the mistake ever happened. And the biggest problem I see today, years ago, commentary was very separate from news, okay? In fact, commentators rarely were on a newscast, rarely. There was this thing called the Fairness Doctrine, and you had to present both sides. Now, I'm not you know, trying to say that the Fairness Doctrine was magical. But it did kind of force stations to be balanced whether they wanted to be or not. When President Reagan got rid of the Fairness Doctrine, it went away in 1987. It opened up the floodgates for one-sided radio and later one-sided TV. And I suggest to you that a lot of people to this day, even educated people, cannot separate commentary from news reporting because it's all been kind of mushy together. You know, you can watch a newscast and they may even bring on the commentators. And I wish they wouldn't. They don't belong in the newscast. And unfortunately, there really has been a blurring of those lines. And I think it's made the public less rather than more informed.
1: Donna, as we come to a close for our interview, I have a couple of questions that I ask everyone who sits where you are. The first one is, what do you wish you knew when you first got started?
2: Truthfully, I wish I knew that it was going to get better. Because growing up and being constantly surrounded by people who mocked me, by people who said you'll never, by people who made fun of me, And by a small handful of people who said, yeah, maybe, but very few people who said, yes, you will, yes, you can, I wish I knew that things were going to improve because maybe I wouldn't have spent a lot of time feeling depressed and feeling alone and feeling like, wow, this is really hopeless and getting back up again, but never knowing if it was going to work out. I mean, I've had a really good career. I mean, no, I didn't get equal pay. I really never did. That's one of the reasons why I went out and started my own consulting business. I got tired of being paid less than the guys that were doing the same job I was doing. But the truth is, I'm a working class kid from a working class neighborhood. I wasn't expected to be anything in life. And yet, I went on to meet a whole bunch of famous people. I could give you a long list of the people I've met. I had a lot of great stories. I went to a lot of great events. I saw history being made. I watched a lot of interesting people. I worked on Shirley Chisholm's presidential campaign in 1972. I mean, seriously, the first African-American woman to run for president? I mean, I was there. These kinds of stories, I'll never forget. But on the other hand, I wish I knew that things were going to get better because, boy, howdy, there were periods of time when it just really seemed hopeless. And if I wasn't just strong as a person and if I didn't have parents who taught me to be true to my ethics, I don't know where I'd be today.
1: Final question for you. I believe that as women, we see our lives in chapters. And if I'd asked you this question 10, 20, 30 years ago, your answer might be different from the one you will give me today because you can see things in the rearview mirror. At this moment in your life, what does success mean to you?
2: Well, that's an interesting question because on some levels, I feel like I am successful. I mean, here I am doing a podcast about successful women. There's also like a little voice of me going, What are you doing there? You know, I mean, seriously, do you ever feel like a fraud compared to some people? No, I've never made the money I should have. And in a culture that defines success by how much money you make. On the other hand, I've had a lot of successes, that you can't measure them in dollars. I mean, I've been, I believe, successfully married for more than three decades, which In a kind of throwaway culture, that's something really important. I am the advocate for an adult with autism. When I first became his advocate and his mentor, he basically didn't speak. Today, he has more than 350 words in his vocabulary, and I'm very glad that I was able to help him to have a better life. I helped a rock band from Canada go from, nobody's ever heard of them, they're just a club band, to getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, on some levels, yeah, I think I could say that I am a success. On other levels, my story is still being written. And every day that I wake up, I'm like, wow, I'm still here, my enemies will be so disappointed. And I'm still motivated by the fact that there's people out there who told me I'd never make it. And yet here I am, whatever the next chapter is, however long God gives me, I'm going to try to make the most of it. It's a privilege to be on your podcast. Whether I'm a real success or whether I'm sort of a success, I'm very comfortable with the stuff I've accomplished, and I still hope I can accomplish more.
1: Donna Helper, thank you so much for being this week's featured guest on The Story Behind Her Success. Thank you for having me. It was a privilege.
0: Thanks for listening to The Story Behind Her Success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C A N D Y O T E R R Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?